Welcome to Power Up, a podcast show hosted by Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio that brings life to some of the stories on Power Electronics technologies and products featured on PowerElectronicsNews.com and through other as Pencor Media publications. In this show, you'll hear both engineers and executives discuss news, challenges, and opportunities for power electronics in markets such as automotive, industrial, and consumer. Here is your host, Editor-in-Chief of PowerElectronicsNews.com and EEWeb.com, Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio. Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of PowerUp. Today we will talk about the challenges of silicon carbide cost with Peter Gammon. The silicon carbide industry is growing in many energy markets, particularly with the support of providing highly efficient and compact solutions. The electric vehicle market is preparing to move towards silicon carbide inverters, as Tesla has already done. The range of silicon carbide devices begin marketed from 600 to 1700 volt is becoming well recognized and offers a wideband gap alternative to traditional silicon products. In addition to the technical advantages, including switching speed, cost still remains a point of discussion. Moreover, the importance of silicon carbide in markets such as immobility and new energy has prompted many companies to review and invest in wafer technology to define the development plans in line with the demand. In this podcast with Peter Gammon, professor of silicon carbide power devices at Warwick University and founder of PGC Consultancy, we will try to discover more about the cost behind the silicon carbide technology. Peter has analyzed the situation focusing on what there is behind these high prices and what can be done to bring the price down, as well as offering a view in the future of what the cost will be in 10 years' time when electric vehicles should be a central focus of the new automotive. But let's talk with Peter. Hi Peter, thanks a lot for coming on. How are you? Hi Maurizio, I'm good, thank you. Hi. Uh, today I would like to, to analyze better the cost behind uh, silicon carbide, uh, as I said uh, in, uh, in the introduction. But before that, please uh, introduce yourself. Tell me more. Tell us more about you. Well, thanks Maurizio and thanks for inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure to join you on your excellent podcast. Um, well, I'm a professor of power electronics at the University of Warwick. Uh, where I lead a team of researchers developing silicon carbide power devices. The role of the university, as I see it, is uh, the university research sector um, is is to look sort of beyond what the uh, industrial world is doing in uh, silicon carbide power devices right now. And so, and so that's always been kind of my theme the whole way through my 15 years of research in silicon carbide. And so yeah. looking back to when I first started as a PhD student 15 years ago, I was developing the silicon carbide power devices that we're using today. We, we were doing research into silicon carbide diodes and MOSFETs at 600 volts, 1200 volts. Um, we were working then on two-inch, three-inch substrates um, with whatever we could get from, from manufacturers. Um, and so over that time, I've seen the, the full development of silicon carbide from where it was then to four-inch to six-inch, hopefully in the next couple of years to eight-inch substrates. Um, 
And still today in the research sector, we are looking forward. We're looking to go beyond where the market is now in this narrow but lucrative 600, 1200 volt range. We're looking to go up to higher voltages. So we're trying to produce uh, IGPTs, thyristors, other types of power devices up to 20 kilovolts or more. Um, and we're looking at the new applications that we can take silicon carbide to, particularly space. Um, and also, uh, I, I recently, last year, started my own consultancy business, silicon, uh, P, PGC Consultancy. And this is um, my vehicle for helping uh, engineering, business, finance industries understand new wide band gap technologies, silicon carbide, gallium nitride. Um, so uh, I help. I help these companies look into the fundamental benefits of the material, the intricacies of the supply chain and the economics of those devices compared to silicon. Wow, fantastic. Congratulations. So silicon carbide is, uh, is the topic. So the most rapidly growing silicon carbide products are, uh, as you know, currently diodes and MOSFETs. A number of uh, long-term contracts to secure modules for uh, electric vehicles have been highlighted in recent uh, press releases from the main silicon carbide producers. So could you outline the, differ the differences of the silicon carbide supply chain compared to silicon and what are the key challenges? So in, uh, in an article that we analyzed on powerelectronicsnews.com, we uh, talked in terms of silicon carbide wafer process. So this is not only uh, electrical engineering, but also chemistry. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one I get asked an awful lot, which is, um, which is, you know, we've got these uh, silicon devices that are widely used today. And how is silicon carbide different to that? I think we should start fundamentally with the similarities because we, yep. we, we can talk quite a lot about the differences, but actually, um, silicon is silicon carbide is is 50% silicon. Um, it, you're not you're not straying outside of the group four um, elements. It's it's 50% silicon, 50% carbon, and there are an awful lot of similarities in and around the two materials, which are to silicon carbide's benefit. Um, first and foremost, that it's a material that can be produced in large um, in very large areas, so you can produce full freestanding substrates mm -hmm. of silicon carbide. Uh, that means that you don't have to grow silicon carbide on top of another material. GAN, for example, gallium nitride has to be grown uh, epitaxially on the top of silicon, which causes a few problems, um, issues in the manufacturer that has to be overcome. So we're looking at a similar development process to silicon, that we have a substrate of silicon carbide. We're similarly going to grow a epitaxial layer on the surface, and it's going to undergo similar fabrication processes, um, but they all have their intricacies. Fundamentally, though, we're trying to produce the same power devices in silicon carbide that we have done for um, 50, 60 years in, in silicon. We're trying to produce Schottky diodes. We're trying to produce MOSFETs. One day in the future, hopefully, if I do my work properly, we might get to IGBTs and thyristors as well. Um, uh, so so, so to, to open that box and to see what some of the differences are, um, the, the main fundamental differences come in the substrate manufacture. 
that's that's the key fundamental difference and that's what's hitting all of the costs and prices that we we're going to look at later as well um silicon's nice and easy relatively speaking it's quite you can process silicon at a as i say relatively low temperature you can melt it down and you, you get a liquid form of silicon and pull out these wonderfully large um balls of silicon uh, which are meters long and as wide as you need it to be, which for the power industry is typically, uh, it, it, it can be it can be eight inch. Um, rarely, it's, well, in some places it's 12 inch, you know, in, in, in a number of manufacturers, they've got 12 inch capability with silicon. So you've got these large balls that are produced in one process that can be cut up to make numerous large area um, substrates. Silicon carbide, in contrast, you to go into the liquid phase of silicon carbide just takes too much energy, too high a temperature, and we can't um, industrially at scale produce um, silicon carbide wafers to that degree. So we have to use another process, something called a seeded sublimation process. And this means you're actually um, growing uh, silicon carbide from a a seed crystal very, very slowly with a lot of energy required. I won't go into the details of this. I think you've got good articles on the on the details of growing silicon carbide substrates, but it's suffice to say that it's an energy intensive, um, expensive process that at the end yep. of the day produces short balls, something like 25 to 40 millimeters long. And currently, Currently today, I can only go out and buy on the market 150 millimeter diameter mm -hmm. substrates. Now, one day in the next couple of years, perhaps the um, the industry will move to 200 millimeter. Um, certainly, parts of the industry will move to 200 millimeter, um, and the cost difference that occurs because of that will come down. But there's no quick fix to that, and uh, mm -hmm. we'll get onto that in a minute. But um, there's no quick fix to that, and there's there's this high cost in energy costs embedded into that silicon carbide substrate manufacturer. Look at it. Oh, go on. No, sorry. Uh, going into the other, going into the other key differences. I mean, there's the the, the others are are more subtle, perhaps. The other differences, um, you, you the epitaxy costs, the fabrication costs, yeah. they're all going to be slightly more in silicon carbide. Again, because silicon carbide has to be processed at higher temperatures, requires greater energy. So we need bespoke epitaxy equipment and we need um, uh, fabrication equipment that can go up to higher temperatures typically. Now, some it, it, it's usually the case that silicon, a traditional silicon fab might not be um, instantly able to take silicon carbide, but the investment in silicon carbide infrastructure should be backwards compatible. So um, so you just need that process, that fabrication capability to go up to the higher temperatures, the higher uh, the process, um, yeah, the higher process temperatures. Um, uh, there are one or two bespoke fabrication steps that you need for silicon carbide as well, um, particularly in the manufacture of the gate to try and get that gate uh, the channel mobility as high as you possibly can. Something you touched on with um, Anna Agarwal last time in your previous podcast. But um, but yeah, there's a couple of unique things about silicon carbide. But I think I think in summary, you've got these you've got these small factors that make the cost much higher. But it does come out to a a device fundamentally that looks um, quite similar to a silicon device. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have two points. I mean, in terms of cost and uh, 150 uh, millimeter uh, diameter substrates or 200 millimeter. So going forward, the focus will be on developing technologies for expanding applications of silicon carbide devices. Some analysts believe that silicon carbide solutions will represent a large portion, a large part of the power electronics market in the next futures, uh, future. So we can see electric vehicles. So what do you think about it? And cost reduction technology will be especially important in achieving, I guess, this market penetration. So what is behind the high prices and uh, what can be done to reduce them just to for, for the next uh, market future? Okay, well, on the uh, on the the um, potential market, you, you've got to come back to um, the demonstrators, the the uh, examples that we have in the market today, and we've got this fantastic um, example of what silicon carbide can do, yep. opening up in front of our eyes in the automotive industry, the lucrative um, mm -hmm. automotive market, which the device manufacturers are chasing today. Mm -hmm. And we're at the very nascent, very early stages of um, the silicon carbide journey. And so we've, the, the, the penetration is relatively small right now, but you're starting to see the benefits. Mm -hmm. In these early adopters, we're, we're, we're talking about um, systems which are at 400 volts today, which is relatively low. The market is looking to shift yeah. to 800 volts. Um, systems in electric vehicles for all the advantages that higher voltage give you faster charging, smaller cable mm -hmm. weights, that kind of thing. Um, but even at 400 volts, which is not silicon carbide sweet spot, it's actually a bit low for it. Um, it demonstrates much faster switching speeds than the silicon devices that are there already, the silicon IGPTs that are there already. And that's producing smaller, lighter, more efficient inverters they take up less space um, and the efficiency gains and the smaller, the, the re reduction in um, cooling that's required means that um, th th that greater efficiency is used to reduce the amount of batteries you require to get a given yep. range. So you're getting the payback in the system. Now, we're seeing all of these advantages at 400 volts already. This is in that this that's this is in that drivetrain inverter converting that DC um, battery energy into the AC that's required for the, okay. the motor. Um, we're seeing all these advantages 400 volts in the Tesla Model 3, for example. Now, um, as you move to 800 volts, you actually start. Um, widening the advantage of silicon carbide over silicon mm -hmm. the, the 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 gains of going to silicon carbide are even better the efficiency benefits will be greater so the argument for silicon carbide gets stronger with the trends of the market today which is to go to higher voltage so you can only see the penetration of silicon carbide in the automotive industry getting um getting greater um but it is a it is a conservative marketplace. It's not it's mm -hmm. not going to happen overnight. You've got to prove the reliability and things first. But then, just to your question about the power electronics market in general, that's yes. that's only that's only the automotive market. But this, I feel, is like the uh, the signal of what can happen elsewhere. Um, 
electrification doesn't start and end at um, at cars. You're going to have the electrification, the, the further electrification of trains, um, marine um, uh, shipping transport. Um, you're going to have solar applications, grid applications, industrial machines, data centers, all of these areas um, which require high voltage power electronics um, are going to see that uh, advantage of <laughs> silicon carbide as the material matures, as its proven reliability increases, and as the um, uh, the, the, the selection of silicon carbide devices that are out there starts to widen uh, up to even higher voltages. Okay. Um, so then to your second point about the price differential, um, uh, yep. again, the, the, the higher cost of silicon carbide um, devices is embedded. It's embedded mm -hmm. from the substrate mm -hmm. uh, because of those higher energy costs that are required to produce the substrates. Um, you've got a you've got an intense um, manufacturing process to deal with to pay with to pay for. Um, so so that's the, that's the starting point. You've got a something like a fifty times cost difference in the fundamental substrate that you're buying to start off with. Now it's also worth saying that that silicon carbide substrate today is not of the highest is not of the same quality yet mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. the silicon wafer that that you'll buy. So the defect densities are not zero. They're not massive in silicon carbide, but they're not zero like they might be in silicon, um, or as good as zero. And so and so you've got some yield factors to take into account in terms of the, the, the number of devices that might have to be thrown away for being on defects to start off with. What we might call our epitaxy yield, mm -hmm. um, and then and then because of some of the processes that have to go on in silicon carbide in this um, oxide manufacturer, um, you're going to lose some devices in the dye testing, in the dye yield, um, in that burn-in phase, as well, and that so that yield only goes down when you start to go into the rigorous automotive qualification as well. So um, when you have to test your devices to meet the higher standards, obviously you're going to lose a greater proportion of them. So yield issues come into uh, into play as well as the highest the higher substrate costs. And of course, if your if your substrate costs are higher to start off with, mm -hmm. and your yield is higher, all of those devices that you're throwing away are also expensive devices that need to be added to the okay. um, to the cost. Then there's the cost of epitaxy and fabrication, which are similar orders of magnitude to silicon, but a, again, a little bit more energy intensive. Okay. Um, so those are the those are the key things on the technical side. But then uh, on the price differential, you've got to also consider the market dynamics. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, you've really got a very limited number of um, uh, wafer suppliers in the market okay. and so there's not a great deal of competition and mm -hmm. that is obviously not the case in the silicon world um, and I think market forces have not yet fully taken hold of of silicon carbide and as that as the technology matures as there are more entrants and the, the those who are entering the market get their quality as good as those that are already there, then you might start to see uh, 
greater greater cost um, greater motivation to reduce the costs. Okay. okay. Another point. Silicon carbide devices are predominantly developed on 150 millimeter diameter substrates, as you, you said earlier, with an upgrade to 200 millimeter substrates expected. Uh, so what are the cost benefits of moving to, to this uh, substrate, 200 millimeter substrates? So what is the current situation in particular regarding the adoption of 200 millimeter? One of the key waves to lower uh, costs identify in uh, our articles that we published on uh, powerelectronicsnews.com was the continued development of the device uh, technology. What sort of improvements do you expect over the next few years? So with the next wave of silicon garbide, I mean, is there enough capacity to meet the demand expected in the coming uh, decade? Thanks, Marisa. There's a lot of really interesting co uh, questions in there, and that this this speaks to the article that we've written together for yeah. Power Electronics News. It's uh, it's it uh, on the on the reduction to the cost going forward. It's a fascinating area moving forward. Now the um, the move to 200 millimeter is interesting, and um, there's been a lot written about it. And I think we need to be kept into context. So, so let's talk mm -hmm. about the benefits to start off with. Moving to 200 millimeter is uh, is is obviously good because if you go to a higher a higher diameter substrate, when that goes through the fabrication line, you're going to produce 1.8 times more devices than you are at 150 okay. millimeters. So fundamentally, you're going to produce more devices, so your epitaxy and your substrate costs mm -hmm. are going to produce proportionally. Um, but that's not a, a magic bullet. That, that doesn't um, help overnight with the costs because you, you still need on the substrate side the same amount of proportionally the same amount of energy to get to make the larger wafers. So yep. your costs of the substrates are relatively going to increase with the, with the greater diameter size. Um, so there are some early indications that um, these 200 millimeter wafers are, are not instantly going to be a great saving on the 150 millimeter substrates per unit area of, um, of, of substrate. Um, also, when you produce a new wafer size, it's, uh, it takes a long time for the technology to mature. We've seen it once before going from four inch to six inch, now from six inch to eight inch. What's going to have to happen is you're going to have to have a period where the uh, the yields, the quality of the material mm. comes back, yeah. uh, okay. back up to the, um, the, the quality of the generation before. So the six mm -hmm. inch material is, um, is fantastic today, uh, uh, but it, it took a long time to get up to that level. Mm -hmm. After it was after the development, um, after the shift from four inch. Uh, now eight inch is only just coming out. There's been a lot of development work in the background in Wolf Speed, for example, of trying to okay. up the quality. Um, but there is inevitably going to be a a an effect on yield potentially on the in mm -hmm. the substrates to start off with. So whilst your areas might be slightly big, uh, your, your areas would be much bigger. Your 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 yield your defect density might take mm -hmm. a backward, slight backward step for a little while. Um, so that will take a while to bed in and for the technologies to get um, okay. Okay. to improve. 
So you um, mentioned. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the current situation regarding two hundred millimeters. Well, we have um, we have uh, one manufacturer in particular, uh, Wolfspeed, who yeah. is looking to go to two hundred millimeter this year. Their Mohawk Valley uh, production line is nearly up and running, uh, and they're saying that they have production coming out of that in 2022, 23. And there have been one or two other manufacturers in the market, um, uh, U6 and um, uh, GTAT, who have signaled that they are close to yes. going to eight inch as well. So we have we have that on the horizon and it's coming, but I think, I think uh, Wolfspeed are closer than most to um, getting there. Um, Okay. The other key point that we talked about in the article was it's not just about the substrate technology that's going yeah. to um, reduce costs going forwards. What's also key is the device technology and improving the fundamental device technology. Now, a device is only as big as you need it to be. And if you can improve the resistance of the device, if you can make everything a little bit more efficient, if you can scale everything down in terms of resistance in your device, mm -hmm. then that means that you can actually scale down the die size. And because for any application, you, you only need a given amount of current. And so mm -hmm. whatever that is, is going to take a, an amount of silicon carbide real, space, real estate. So scale down the resistance and you'll actually scale down the die area that you, you need. Um, and so the continued maturity of the technology, as we move from uh, today's generation, some, some call it mm -hmm. generation two, generation three silicon carbide devices move on. Yeah. What we're seeing with the release of every generation of devices is that the, right. um, the resistance is coming down and down. Um, silicon today, silicon today is at the fundamental limit, what we call the unipolar limit of the material. You cannot squeeze much more uh, current through a silicon chip. It's it's at its fundamental limits. The, the resistance is as low as it will go. When you have a look at that comparator to silicon carbide, you actually see there's this big gap. The fundamental limit for silicon carbide remains... Um, uh, an, an order of magnitude or so lower than these devices at 600 and mm -hmm. 1200 volts. So there's a lot of development space still to go into. Those challenges aren't easy. Uh, they, we're coming up against the, the, some real difficult challenges to, to, to reduce those resistances even further. But inevitably, we'll continue to take finite chunks out of the, the resistance of the device. Okay. Reduce the re resistance of the device. Reduce the die size. If you reduce the die size, you get more die per substrate. And also, if you've only got a fixed number of defects in your mm -hmm. wafer, a smaller defect, uh, a smaller die size means that your your percentage yield is going to go up because your a fewer number of your devices get written off by sitting on top of one of these defects. Okay. So you get a multiple compounded win by doing the, the incremental improvement mm -hmm. on the device development. So substrates is one key point. Um, reducing, Improving the technology and reducing the resistance is key. Competition, as I mentioned before, is mm -hmm. another one. Um, have we got enough capacity going forward was your other question there. Um, 
I think it depends which market analyst report you read, but I think I think there is some general consensus, and uh, with some of the analysts I have worked with, saying that there is not if the if the market if the EV market expands as it does, as mm-hmm. it is as it's predicted to do, and yes. the silicon carbide in uh, take up in that industry continues at the same pace then it looks going forward that there is a net shortage over the next decade of silicon carbon mm-hmm. and silicon carbide suppliers. Right now, today, it is um, quite a challenge. Now, I come from the research background, so I'm not buying in the bulks of um, mm-hmm. some of the in- of uh, an industrial fab, for example. Yep. But, you know, um, it is a lot harder today to buy silicon carbide chips, devices, material uh, than it was five years ago, inevitably, uh, and, and the lead times are longer. So we're starting to see um, some supply uh, reduction in the demand being higher than supply in the market already, and that is predicted to carry on into the next decade. Okay. So you mentioned electric vehicles. So some OEMs for electric vehicles are focused on uh, on silicon carbide, as, as you know. Are any of them still talking about silicon IGBT and but why? Where will the IGBT fit in the future uh, power market? How do companies evaluate this competition? I mean, between uh, silicon carbide, MOSFET and IGBT in particular for for the automotive market for the next uh, electrification? Yeah, well, it's key, to, it's key to say to start off with that just about every OEM that I can think of now mm-hmm. in the automotive industry it has a silicon carbide program i mean we're involved in the university and in, in some of them <laughs> you know you see it and it's there's some great work going on behind the scenes to develop yeah. um new silicon carbide modules um and, and i think you're going to see that in your automotive uh day that you've got coming up i think there's some great work going on in wide bank app technologies already so there is a there is a there is a there is a race that people are mm-hmm. trying to get this technology on board. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing that is important to say is it's, it's one thing for a technology to be uh, to be better than another on paper yeah. in, in, yes. our, in, our, in our wonderful academic articles <laughs> that we write in, in your magazine pages. Um, and, and we can prove the benefits and show why you might want to adopt silicon carbide, uh, all things being equal. But the, the harsh reality of this is that you've got a newcomer to the market trying to usurp, trying to move out of the way mm-hmm. an established, reliable, cheap uh, technology in a in a relatively conservative market uh, application space. So it takes the adventurous souls of this world, like Tesla being the first adopter to to do it to. Um, to do it first, to show the way, to show the advantages. Um, so, so what's going to be key for silicon carbide is is proving first. You you asked what's a, what's a, an OEM thinking about? Well, of course they're thinking about cost. <laughs> so cost cost has to come down. Um, you hope one hopes from from where we sit and from the outside that the the, mm-hmm. the the systems benefit that would would be would be realized you know that you that that what we think and predict will happen in terms of the efficiency gains the 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 yep. greater 
um, the greater investment up front in your mm -hmm. semiconductor chips, getting paid back later by reducing the cost of your batteries, etc. What we, we kind of think is going to happen, it would be good to know that, that if, if and when that does happen in the automotive system. So cost is particularly one of them. Reliability and robustness. You have to make sure that every chip that you are putting into an automotive inverter is um, lasting the distance, is going mm -hmm. to survive for the 10, 20 years, however long it is that it needs to survive for. And so it's that's always the big challenging one to get over because the first person to adopt that technology doesn't yeah. have the data there to say that this technology in the field, in their own cars, it's definitely going to make it right. that long. So you have to be brave on that side. And the more adopters that you get, the more you start to get a snowball effect on on that. So we're thinking about we think about differences in efficiency, performance, cost, reliability, and robustness. So yes, we've got we've got the start the starting of that adoption in the market. And I think we'll only see more going forward. And key, as we start going to 800 volts, you'll mm -hmm. start to see even more adoption. I think. Uh, I think Porsche Taycan was the the last vehicle to go to. 800 volt architectures and they use silicon IGBTs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that will become a rare thing. I think we'll start to see more moving movement to 800 volts mm -hmm. and therefore more movement to silicon carbide. What's interesting and the bit I leave as an open question because I don't know the answer is I don't know when it when the lower power systems. We, we the the adoption so far has been in the okay. the high end vehicles, the Model Threes, the Taycans, the lucid yeah. this, this this world what would be really interesting to see is when the the domestic vehicles start to adopt silicon carbide when will the nissan leaf start to move to silicon carbide that kind of thing yeah. i think that's that's really interesting to me and i i, I don't know the answer with when that becomes more commercially yeah. viable great so just my my last point uh, so gallium like just like silver bite gallium nitride or GAN, I mean, is uh, considered it to be a promising material for power devices, power market. How do these two wide band gap semiconductors compare? And is there room in the market for both materials? So what application might favor each material? Yeah, don't buy into the idea that there's this huge competition between the two i i don't i think i think that's a phony war a phony argument i don't think one needs to exist in the place of the other i do believe they will um they will coexist and they have their strengths they are both okay. fantastic technologies that are um uniquely positioned to um benefit different application spaces there is a very small region where they overlap. The small region where they overlap is potentially in the sort of low power, mm -hmm. low power automotive systems, for example. So the, okay. the onboard charger is one example where you might have competition. But I think it's I think it's fairly well um, read now. I think it's it's just quite a consensus behind the idea that silicon carbide is really the high power materials mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. we're, we're only looking six as i said earlier 600 volts is yeah. is is 
silicon carbide is good at 600 volts, but it's excellent at 1200 volts. And it will continue to show its, um, its benefits, its advantages, its mm -hmm. potential as, as the uh, voltage range increases. As we go higher and higher in voltage, you'll see the benefits increasing over existing silicon technologies. And, and so, and so that's the that's the path that silicon carbide will um, follow. That high voltage, high power application. Mm -hmm. I think GAN is uh, is great, mm -hmm. but the way that you have to produce GAN as a lateral device, yeah. um, grown on top of another material with defects in there, um, this means that. The devices are fundamentally large to start off with. It means their yields are high, and that is really quite challenging. Then, if on top of that you're trying to make high voltage and high current, high current means high area, but a bit mm -hmm. wide, large area chips. Uh, and so, really, the, that scaling up and up and up in power and voltage for GAN is is not necessarily the way that it, 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 it's looking like it would go. So I think I think these onboard chargers where you might be dealing with um, low power, 9, 11 kilowatts, um, could be a sort of the maximum reach for GAN. And we're also we're already seeing GAN get penetration into things like Apple chargers, low voltage domestic chargers. Um, uh, into into RF applications, mm -hmm. so uh, I, I don't believe I don't believe the phony wars that you have to have one instead of the other. Equally, coming down the line in um, 10, 15 years, you might see a few companies working on diamond and gallium oxide and all of these other materials. Great, bring them on. They will have their place in that um, market space next to these other materials. They they. The one doesn't need to exist in place of the other. So, yeah, no, they're both they're both great materials, and I see um, I see they both have their application spaces. Great. So, Peter, thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for having you in this great podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk uh, with you and to know more about uh, silicon carbide, the cost, wideband gap, semiconductors. Thank you. Thanks, Maurizio. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again, Peter. Silicon carbide is a material that can be produced in large areas. So you can produce full freestanding substrates of silicon carbide. As Peter said, that means you don't have to grow silicon carbide on top of another material. Gallium nitride has to be grown epitaxy on the top of silicon, which causes a few problems, issues in the manufacturing that has to be overcome. Because silicon carbide has to be processed at higher temperatures, requires greater energy. So we need epitaxy equipment and we need fabrication equipment that can go up to higher temperatures. It's usually the case that silicon, a traditional silicon fab, might not be instantly able to take silicon carbide, but the investment in silicon carbide infrastructure should be backwards compatible. The higher cost of silicon carbide devices is embedded. It's embedded from substrate because of those higher energy costs that are required to produce the substrates. You have got a great manual manufacturing process to deal with to pay for. As Peter said, also silicon carbide substrate today is not perfect. So the defect densities are not zero. They are not massive in silicon carbide, but they are not zero like they might be in silicon. 
If your substrate costs are higher to start off with and your yield is higher, all those devices that you are throwing away are also expensive devices that need to be added to the cost, as Peter said. So then there is the cost of epitaxy, fabrication, which are similar orders of magnitude to silicon, but a little bit more energy intensive. You can only see the penetration of silicon carbide in the automotive industry getting greater, but it is a conservative marketplace. It's not going to happen overnight, as Peter said. You got to prove the reliability first. Grid applications, industrial machines, data centers, all of these areas which require high-voltage power electronics are going to see the advantage of silicon carbide as the material matures, as Peter said during this podcast. For electric vehicle, as we start getting to 800 volts, as Peter said, you will start to see even more adoption. Porsche was the last vehicle to go to 800 volt architectures and they use silicon IGBT. Peter thinks that will become a rare thing, this uh, of about IGBT. We will start to see more moving to 800 volts and therefore more movement about silicon carbide. GAN and silicon carbide are two wideband gap semiconductors, both great materials, and as Peter said, they both have their application spaces. That brings us to the end of this episode. Stay tuned with more news and technical aspects about power electronics. If you are listening to this on the podcast page at etimes.com or powerelectronicsnews.com, links to articles on topics we have discussed are shown in this page. Power Up is brought to you by Aspencore Media, the host is Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio, and the producer is James Eid. Thank you everyone for listening, see you next episode, stay tuned.